You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. Um, my guest today is Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. She really doesn't need an introduction for Blogging Heads regulars, but I will ask her to introduce herself anyway. Sure, that's right. Uh, thank you, Arya. Um, I do uh, the, with um, Kat and I do the Feminine Chaos um, program on blogging heads as well. But um, so what can I say about myself? I wrote The Perils of Privilege, a book that came out in 2017 and discussed it actually um, with Arya on a different um, blogging heads. And I also sort of my other career thing is I have a PhD in French and French studies from NYU and my dissertation was on um, 19th century French Jewish history. Um, so that's sort of what brings me here today is to talk about that. I don't really do much to do with that these days, um, that topic, but it, it follows all of us everywhere. <laughs> right. So um, the thing we're mainly yeah. going to be talking about is, uh, well, we have a couple topics. So the first topic is going to be, uh, the Dreyfus affair, which you are an expert in. And, um, the next topic will be, um, much more lighthearted, I expect, um, which is, uh, Seinfeld, the TV show Seinfeld. You mentioned in an episode a couple weeks ago of your show, Feminine Chaos, that you, uh, strongly identified with the character George and, and oh, for sure. I, and I think uh, me and at least one commenter were surprised by that and thought, I thought really? like, wow, that, that's interesting. And, and Seinfeld was a big part of my life when I was a teenager. Um, so I wanted to talk about that. And then maybe if we still have time, we'll talk about, uh, being canceled, being uncanceled, being self-canceled, being canceled and not actually being canceled and, and stuff like that. Um, but okay. So let's, so let's start with the Travis affair. And I, we kind of like, you and I have just, like, I knew, I think you have discussed this before, maybe I've read your writing about it and knew you had an ex expertise in it. And I know a little bit about it. Um, probably some people have heard what it is and don't, um, know the details at all. And so we're going to talk about this historical event and it's, uh, contemporary resonances. So for people who have never heard of it before, <laughs> what is the Dreyfus affair? Oh, sure. So this is, this is going to be a special for any, commenter who wants to really hear me hold forth is special <laughs> occasion for that. Um, so the, the Dreyfus affair was, is the description given to, um, the controversy surrounding the, uh, false accusation, uh, the unjust accusation of treason against, um, French Jewish army officer, Alfred Dreyfus, um, the affair itself is the dates generally given 1894 to 1906, starting from when Dreyfus was arrested to and ending when he was um, exonerated. Alfred Dreyfus um, went on to serve again in the French military, served in World War One. Um, and this whole episode as. Um, the historian, um, Pierre, the French historian, uh, Pierre Birnbaum has written, um, it, and I think it's just kind of generally understood is it's kind of, it's a very bleak moment in a lot of ways in French Jewish history, but it's also, um, weirdly perhaps seen as kind of among French Jews as 
a kind of positive, or at least it was for a time, as a sort of positive episode because it was a time when, um, because basically Dreyfus won. Um, the sort of, the the left, broadly speaking, and a lot of the center in France ended up um, supporting Dreyfus and opposing anti-Semitism. And this event, I mean, we, there's so much about it we're going to be talking about, so I'll try not to um, try to cover everything in like one, you know, spoken paragraph here. Mm-hmm. But basically, um, because of the Dreyfus affair, um, that's kind of why the left in France didn't go a really anti-Semitic route that it kind of had been going up till then to some extent. So um, the Dreyfus affair was terrible for Alfred Dreyfus personally, who was sent to Devil's Island and not having obviously a great time of it. But it's compared certainly to the sort of more famous, notorious, better known, you know, event of French Jewish history, namely the Holocaust in France. Obviously, the Dreyfus affair is both seemingly not such a big deal, but also, a, a you know, it was a story about anti-Semitism, but anti-Semitism kind of overcome. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's the shortest I can do on the Dreyfus. Okay, yeah. So, okay, so what was, what was the precipitating event that led to him being charged? Okay. So the precipitating event, to understand kind of the context of it, basically the Dreyfus family, which we will be talking about again when we get to Seinfeld because of Julia Louis-Dreyfus being from apparently the same family. You're giving away uh, the transition, uh, the segue. Yeah, I, I am well, meticulously uh, prepared. No, no, I'm joking. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, the script I'm reading from this. No. Um, yeah, basically they were um, Jews from like Alsatian Jews. So from this region, that's this border region between France and Germany that sometimes in history has belonged to France, sometimes to Germany. Right. So, in the Franco-Prussian War, um, a, a lot of Jewish families from that region opted to be French rather than German. These were Jews who were Ashkenazi and um, had like sort of somewhat Germanic culture, right? So they were perceived of, they, they faced not just anti-Semitism in France, but also kind of anti-German sentiment as well. So basically somebody was selling secrets to the Germans in the 1890s when this was a big deal um, and when there was just still a lot of tension between um, France and Germany. um, And there was this document, um, I feel like there's a name for it in English, but whatever, isn't it the Bordeaux? Anyway, whatever, the point is there was a document that... um, where Dreyfus was accused of having sold these secrets, right? And supposed to be his handwriting, but then they found other handwriting. It wasn't really his handwriting, but anyway, um, the forgery. It was all a lot of drama. That aspect of it, I'm like, I would need more notes to mm-hmm. get the every detail about it. But basically, um, the precipitating event was kind of the Franco-Prussian War, even though that was earlier. Um, But then the precipitating event itself was this secrets having been sold to the Germans situation. Um, And then Dreyfus being arrested. And then you were probably going for Zola, maybe. Well, Well, 
Okay, so know. yeah, so there was a, okay a document that um, seemed to implicate Dreyfus as the person so, um, right. passing secrets to the enemy Germans, and um, and yeah, so then why? Okay, so was this like? So I guess one of the few things I know about the Dreyfus affair is that it was a cause celeb, and maybe it was like the oh, first right. okay, cause celeb. Okay, uh, I well, boy. So, um, so, so did that? How I will, long I will it take? plead. I will plead sleeplessness or lack of sleep, whatever, and say yes. The precipitating event for the Dreyfus affair was really um, the French uh, novelist and public intellectual Emile Zola. And first, a little side note: you should read his. Everybody should read his novel, um, The Lady's Paradise, is what it's called in English. It's really, really good. Um, he's written, he's written he, as if he's like still alive. He's like sitting here next to me. Um, he wrote many, many novels, some of which aren't great, but that one I, I think is. Is really he the one good. who wrote this like a kind of loosely interconnected the, like yes, fifty novels or something? Roland Macquart uh, novels, where it's like this family tree. It's naturalist literature, um, and where he did all this research and had these obviously not really the cutting edge of science for today, but these notions about genetics and all of this. But basically um, he also was a public intellectual who had written um, for his day, very progressive things about Jews already, including even in his fiction. Um, although sometimes, I mean, it would all be super problematic by today's standards, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm not just guessing at this, like I know what these novels are. <laughs> the novel L'Argent Money, I think, would probably, you know, um, a sensitivity reader would find one or two things <laughs> to pick up on. <laughs> but anyway, but he was still, but he basically, he saw this um, injustice and wrote this article um the front page of a friend on the front page of a French newspaper. And the article was called J'accuse, I accuse and accused everybody in authority um, of mishandling this case. This in turn got people interested. So there had been a Dreyfus case for a few years there before there was a Dreyfus affair. So it was, that's what turned it into a thing. Okay. So yeah. Okay. that, That makes sense. And, um, so did it become clear to the unbiased observer, although maybe there could have been such a person, that Dreyfus was innocent and was being railroaded? Or was it, like, evidence on both sides and mm. people are, like, fighting it out? Well, so eventually more people became convinced of his innocence. But part of the issue was that the way this case split French public opinion, which so that's what it's famous for, basically, is that it split French public opinion – it wasn't always along obvious lines. So in one sense, um, like there were people who um, thought that Dreyfus was innocent, but that it was that there were bigger truths than that. Big, not bigger truths, even just like bigger issues than that. And that it was more important to stick up for the church and the army as institutions than to worry about Dreyfus. On the other hand on the left it was not a sort of and this is i think the most interesting aspect of this um and this is i feel like this is something i learned in a course i took like possibly even as an undergrad and i just i'm still kind of obsessed with this because it's so interesting basically it was not a given on the left that dreyfus should be supported because basically 
the left was at the time. This is, we still have these sorts of debates today, and this is the, about the contempt, getting a little of the contemporary relevance. But Alfred Dreyfus was a bourgeois man, right? Not, I mean, the fact that he was a man was not the issue um, then. But um, yeah, he was from a bourgeois family. He was well off, um, and the left was about the proletariat, the underdog, and it was not self-evident, that's the word I'm looking for, on the left, that they should bother themselves with anti-Semitism because wasn't that like identity policy? I mean, they wouldn't have said it like that, obviously, but um, but effectively it was that, this that it wasn't um, clear that this was something the left should even get involved in. And it was only um, when the socialist leader, um, Jean Jaurès, got involved um, that the left came around to this. So it wasn't so much about like making it clear that Dreyfus hadn't done what he was accused of. It was also just this notion of um, that he was a that that this was something worth thinking about and dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay, so he was convi- first time he was convicted, and then he was. Um... Was he immediately exiled to this place, Devil's Island? Right. Um, not like, I, I don't remember exactly the the timeline of this, but so he was arrested, then he goes to Devil's Island, then he's pardoned and then exonerated. Mm. So these were different steps. But basically, another sort of important thing about the Dreyfus Fair is that like, not a whole lot, and we'll get to this, I guess, when we're talking about the contemporary significance, but, like, not much happened. Like, this was one man got arrested. There were, especially in Algeria, uh, some anti-Jewish riots. But in general, this was not... It was one of these things where it was very symbolically important. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, like, day-to-day life, it was not huge, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's, you know, like it's interesting to think like how many, how many court cases from over a hundred years ago do we like have any contemporary resonance at all? Um, exactly. You know, like maybe like, I don't know, like Oscar Wilde's like court case or something. Like I yeah. just, nothing's like, nothing's like coming to me. That's, that's the same. So it is, yeah, it is very strange. And it was this, just this one guy. Um, so then how did he end up getting pardoned and uh, exonerated? Um, I don't remember the details of that aspect. Like, I mean, it, it was basically just that more and more people got involved, um, you know, with Zola and other French, French intellectuals really leading the way. I don't remember the exact steps of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and was the, was the like document shown to be forged or was it just like they were misunderstanding? I think so. I think so. I, oh, I thought I was going to have a, a little more time to. <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, no, but I mean, I guess I think what really, um, in terms of just like the significance of it, the things I would want people who didn't, you know, waste a lot of their twenties studying this um, to know about is like, there was so much, anti-Judaism it was I guess it's anachronistic to call it anti-Semitism because of it was before the 1880s but they're in like 1840s France like in the mid early mid 19th century in France um so in terms of how people understand this um like in North America in the states it's generally like well there was the holocaust that was when there was this European anti-Semitism and who knows what happened before that but in France basically there was so like socialism and 
anti-Semitism were like deeply, deeply intertwined. Not always, not all socialists would have been anti-Semitic, but like these things were not separate. Like this notion of the Jewish banker, the Rothschilds, all of this, that was just kind of part of the left, really like until the Dreyfus affair. And obviously has kind of stuck around in parts of the left to this day all over the world, but it's not in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in terms of why the Dreyfus affair stuck around though, part of it has to do with like the history of Zionism and like why there's a state of Israel and the false apparently um, understanding that there is a state of Israel because um, Theodore Herzl covering the Dreyfus affair for the Austrian press um, like wrote about and he did write about it, but it's, it seems like there was a little more to it than that. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, I didn't even know that, um, that fact, but that, 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 that's, that's like popularly misunderstood that Herzl was directly inspired. Um, Herzl, father of Zionism was directly inspired right. by, by this case. Um, so how did, so what did you specifically, um, do your dissertation on, um, and, and how did, oh. how did the Dreyfus affair relate to that? So the Dreyfus Fair is what I thought I would go to grad school to study. And it's one of these things that's like both really obscure and really not obscure, I guess, because it's like one of these things that's just been written about a ton. It seemed obscure to me as an undergrad. So I did not end up writing specifically about the Dreyfus Affair. But what I wrote about did kind of end up involving it. So basically, I wrote about... um the title, I think it was Jews and Intermarriage in 19th Century France. So I wrote about Jews and Catholics marrying also, but like more the idea of these marriages, um, because there were not very many of them actually happening, um, pretty much from the French Revolution when these marriages became a legal possibility because they weren't prior to civil marriage um, legally possible. So that's the French Revolution. So like 1789, and shortly after um, is when both when Jews were emancipated in France, when they became French citizens and when civil marriage became possible. So I cover that period to um, basically, yeah, like around the time of the Dreyfus affair. So the Dreyfus affair enters into this in terms of a real shift in the discourse on this topic. So basically at first, um, the mainstream French view was very much in theory that there should be more of these marriages because that would kind of dilute the Jewish population out of France and is sort of assimilationist idea. Right. But then what happened during the Dreyfus affair and around that time, and also a little bit before that too, was the more sort of dominant mainstream view was that, um, that Jews had become sort of too assimilated and were this sneaky, sinister, sort of obviously mainstream anti-Semitic view, these things were not always so separate, um, were this kind of sneaky presence in France and that intermarriage was sort of, the cliche switched from being that of a beautiful, exotic Jewish woman um, sort of whose oppressive father is preventing her from marrying the gallant prince to being the hideous but rich um, Jewish banker's daughter who is who a, an impoverished Catholic noble has to marry um, because his family has no money, basically. Mm-hmm. So the cliche, I'm sorry, these are all cliches. In reality, 
people were marrying the same people they would have married like hundreds of years before. And there just wasn't a ton of actual intermarriage. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, should we jump to the contemporary residents part? Is there anything else you want to say about the historical part? Um, about the historical part? No. I mean, I, I have in my notes historiographic debate. I think we'll pass on that, even though I, I could, but I won't. So the <laughs> contemporary relevance, I mean, the obvious is like, like you were saying about like the Jacques, where you see these references to it all the time. Um, certainly if you're looking for it, um, where, you know, or anytime something's called the such and such affair in that sense. But I would yeah. say I've thought about it in terms of just like various news stories recently in which effectively nothing happens. And the temptation is to say or to comment or whatever, like, why are we talking about this when in whichever country that week, you know, thousands of people are being killed or dying from something, some sort of natural disaster. You know, why are we talking about this nonsense, dramatic news story when there's so much else in the world? And I guess, um, it's not so much that the Dreyfus affair is the reason we should talk about the nonsense, but it's just to say that it's not new and that these kind of are how intellectual debates take place. There often are these fraud things. So one that came up was that, um, Covington story where these um, students from a Catholic high school were in DC um, and one of them smirked. (laughs) Yeah. Most people probably remember this. Uh, It was only like two months ago, I think. Um, It it feels now very, I'm like trying to remember, like, I know there was like, there was a native American activist. American activist also. Yeah. The initial thing that went viral was this video of a, young man, teenager in a red Make America Great Again hat, having yes, some sort of staring hat. at a Native American activist who's like banging a, a little drum and theming, and, and the young man is seemingly smirking. And then other videos came out that uh, complicated the picture of what happened on the ground where the um, Native American man like entered the group of, you know, 50 or so young men from the private Catholic school. And so it seemed like kind of, he initiated the confrontation. There was also this group that's called, I think the black Hebrew Israelites that were involved. Right, they to were some involved. Extent, if we want to get the, uh, the Jewish, <laughs> the Jewish or quote unquote Jewish angle into this, but yeah, but, oh, um, and uh, yeah, it seemed to captive, it captivated social media for a very long time. There were, there were op-eds written and editorials and reporting. And what does this mean? Right. Um, and it really all does seem ridiculous. Like, even at the time, I thought it seemed very well, somebody stupid. somebody gave somebody a look was the whole thing. The most that even might have happened, in a sense, was a look. Yeah. And, and why and, or, did this and wearing of a hat so, and I, yeah. so many people yeah. when, yeah. like, yeah. So, it, it like, okay, so in the Dreyfus Affair, it wasn't, you could say, historic, you know, like, in the grand scheme of things, it was just one man who had an injustice done to him. In the case of the Covington thing, what was on video was a like quasi confrontation in which nothing actually happened. <laughs> there wasn't a punch oh, right. thrown. No one, no one was injured. Um, but because it was recorded and like edited selectively, whether on purpose or not, it somehow made people go nutso. And then I guess the, um, the, the kid, um, who was uh, smirking or not smirking, depending on your point of view, became the Dreyfus like figure in this because, uh, things were, he was like ID'd or doxxed or something and people found out who he was. And then he went on, 
uh, one of the like Good Morning America, one of those shows, like within 72 hours, giving his side of the thing. And then his parents are suing the Washington Post and like one or two other organizations for $250 million. Um, oh, nice. So that's obviously like, that's a ridiculous lawsuit. That's like they're looking for a settlement or something. I, d- I doubt they'll get that. But um, yeah. <laughs> so, the, so is this, is, yeah. La- is LaFair Covington, is this the, uh, <laughs> is this splitting opinion? Uh, <laughs> um, you... Well, I think what's, I think it's definitely Dreyfus like in terms of the splitting of opinion. And also similarly, I'd say that case of, was it Jesse Smollett? Jesse Smollett, um, I think, yeah. Right, who, uh, that whole story to do with um, a hate crime that maybe didn't actually happen, but I, I have not been following that um, as closely as I was, I guess, at one point following the Covington thing because it was so strange. Um, yeah, in that case, it's, it's, it seems like, like there's a hoax involved as well. Yeah. Um, that's the most likely thing that, that to... That, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, basically, in both of these cases, I would say it's the same idea in terms of sort of a lot of nothing splitting public opinion. Um, And certainly in terms of Dreyfus being a lot of nothing, yes, it was one man being, you know, falsely accused and arrested. But I think it's also like, historically, you have to think about what was about to happen with World War One, which was so huge and so momentous and so much more, like between World War One and World War Two, Dreyfus seems like such nothing. You know what I mean? So it's like a similar amount of nothing relatively, maybe, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. But I think where they're different, though, is that there isn't an obvious sort of pure victim figure at the center of it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think the teenager... The teenager is sort of... a pure victim in the sense of being a teenager and like you know in the sense of being you know a child loosely defined i don't know exactly i don't remember how old i think he was like 17 so i mean i i think you know if he were 18 and wearing one of those hats i i would feel absolutely okay with sharing my thoughts on those hats <laughs> if people wear them but um yeah i think I think the question, and then like what, what's, it seems like there's this pattern in a couple of these cases where first a lot of people, um, who aren't necessarily at all on the right and often are on the left or just sort of like have a kind of progressive way of thinking about things will think, well, this doesn't seem right. You know, even though everybody on the left is saying one thing, but this doesn't seem quite right. But then the right will jump in, the far right, Trump, all of, up to Trump, you know, everybody will kind of jump in and, turn it into a kind of far right talking point, you know? So like Trump got involved, right? With um, possibly both of these. I think he weighed in on, on Twitter yeah. on, on both of them. Yeah. So then it becomes this thing where like, um, is this really about the truth or has it just, or do these things with social media in a very different publicity era than um, the 19th century? They just, they just so quickly become so like opinions just divvy up so much more quickly. And, and then there's this issue, right. Of evidence. It's a little different in terms of once you have video involved. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say it's the same in terms of the splitting of public opinion, but um, not quite the same in terms of there being a figure at, at the center of it. Who's so clear cut, but also not the same in terms of there being like an obvious right answer, if that makes sense. Like, cause, and if part of it has to just, just do with time, you know, like you look at the Dreyfus affair now and 
I don't think anybody's saying, well, what, well, not nobody, but most people aren't going to say, well, what a shame that Alfred Dreyfus didn't get punished for the crime he didn't commit, you know, like didn't get more punished than he already was for the crime he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here, I, I don't really know that there's, there's any sort of clear answer in that same way. Like there's like, who was the Zola in all of this? <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's interesting to think about um, who, you know, can, uh, can one, when everyone has the opportunity to weigh in, can one person say J'accuse and who has the moral weight or whatever or the fame to do that? Um, I mean, you know, the, um, in a lot of cases, what, um, or in a lot of cases, in these, in these two cases, what you see a lot of the critique from the right is uh, about the media. And mm-hmm. the media blows us out of proportion. Uh, the young man's parents are suing the media. And then with the small thing, it was like, you know, this, the media wasn't skeptical enough. And, um, you know, they never should have believed him. Uh, and yeah, so the, and you know, the, there, there's a pre-existing <laughs> bias against the media on the right anyway. So that, uh, you know, plays into that and they could just add it to the like bill of particulars and reasons why the media uh, is fake news an enemy of, enemy of the people. Um, and uh, something else you uh, mentioned uh, when you were describing the reaction in, you know, during the Dreyfus era was um, this idea that like, well, do the facts really matter when there's a larger truth at hand here? And I think that really does come into play in a lot of the, in a lot of these um, instances where you have yeah. like a contested episode that everyone, you know, there's everyone wants to weigh in. There's a hot, t- there's the hot take market. Oh, sure. There's the uh, New York review of books article. You can write a month later. And oh, I, which brings up another, <laughs> um, that Ian Baruma financial times article that everybody's obsessed with on Twitter. I quote from it. Free speech is often claimed as a right of the powerful to abuse the weak. After all, la libre parole, the free word was the title of one of the most ferociously anti-Semitic French journals at the time of the Dreyfus affair. So it's everywhere. The Dreyfus affair. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right though about this notion of the, these different, the, the bigger truths. So I think this comes up the most where I see it on the left. It comes up on the left and the right, but where I see it on the left specifically is this notion of sort of like, Yes, these college students were protesting something stupid, but isn't it more important that such and such other thing? You know what I mean? So it's not necessarily that the details are being argued over, but it'll be sort of like, why are you talking about this when there's this other thing that's much bigger, if that makes sense? Yeah, or like, you know, um, okay, maybe Jesse Smollett wasn't assaulted, but um, violence against black men by white extremists is a problem in society. Or maybe the... Right. The Catholic student wasn't smirking, you know, dangerously at the Native American protester, but, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever, you know, the uh, Native American life expectancy is 10 years younger, 10 years shorter than um, than white life expectancy in America or something like that. And so there's people who, like, go all in on these things from the get-go. Like, um, uh, there were some very prominent people who went all in on uh, defending and supporting Jesse Smollett because he is a like B-list celebrity. And so like Ava DuVernay, uh, AOC all posted things on Twitter that were like saying, yes, this, this just shows the problem is X, Y, Z. And I don't know how many of them have kind of said like, Oh, I'm sorry. I, 
rush to judgment yeah. um, usually be more like, well, this is a chance for us to discuss the problem of violence against black men in Chicago. Which arguably, arguably a hoax is harming also. I mean, this is, I'm not by any means the first to say this, like Dan Savage talked about this on his podcast. Like lots of people, I think, noticed this, that like, if you fake a hate crime, you're doing damage also to the population that you're a part of, you know, it's because yeah. then they're more scared. Um, and then they think that it, the feeling like, I mean, I think about, um, cause I think this came up when I was working for the forward. So this was happening all the time there is in the news, these, um, people were calling into Jewish community centers, these yes. bomb threats or something. And then it turned out to be, was it like an Israeli American teenager who just had some kind of was troubled in some ways. Yes, and, I yeah that that I think was 2017, so it was soon after Trump's right. inauguration. Right, and right, yeah, right. there were all these bomb threats being called into Jewish, you know, into synagogues and like Hebrew schools and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like hundreds, I think. And I actually went to yeah. a um like a protest in in Rochester, um, uh, you know, where the uh, mayor of the the town that has like the largest Jewish population in the Rochester metro area spoke, and like other people spoke and saying like, you know, we're not gonna you know, we're going to stand in, in, you know, stand in the face of hate. And then like a year later is revealed. It was this mentally troubled young man in Israel who was doing these things for unknown, (laughs) unknown reasons. So I don't quite know what, yeah. So I don't quite know what, like it was there. I don't know. It's, it's a baffling, that's like a baffling case, but, um, I don't know. I guess guess it's a reason that because it like harmed, it harmed, Jews, basically, that it wasn't so the question, like, I guess the question is, what do you take away from this? And I guess, you know, I don't have to put myself in the place of a Jewish person being that I am Jewish myself. So I think and I even went to mom and baby workout class at at JCC in Toronto uh, (laughs) this very uh, morning afternoon. Um, But I mean, I still think about that. Like, I see JCC, and I think, oh, right, there was that whole thing. That, oh, right, it was that, you know? And I think um, the question is, is the way of taking, like, any form of bigotry seriously to um, sort of ignore the fact that something was a hoax? And I feel like you can't really do it like that. I think you have to consider that the person who did the hoax, um, you don't then jump to everything's a hoax, but um, I certainly don't think that there's that you should kind of let the person off easy who did the hoax. Right. And then, so there's, yeah. So, the, you know, well, I, the, there's never going to be like a rational explanation for why this particular uh, Israeli man did this. Um, but yeah, so he freaked out, um, you know, tens of thousands of people. And uh, in addition, he's now provided like a, another little like data point for the, te- for the people out there who think that like, Oh, the Jews are always making things up and like trying to manipulate us. And may, you know, so that's obviously an anti-Semitic belief, but there's probably people out there who don't like think aren't like obsessed by anti-Semitism who have that sort of, um, belief maybe in the back of their head. And then if this, you know, that, then another thing happens like, Oh yeah, well, the Jews, well, they, they did it again or whatever. <laughs> and so yeah, so no one got blown up, but a lot of people were, uh, freaked out and, uh, yeah. So don't do a hoax. It's <laughs> basically don't do a hoax. Definitely, we we are in full agreement. Don't don't do a hoax. Um, Anti hoax. Whichever um, whichever group you're part of. Right, and I guess. I mean, how do you think does the social media just 
speed this up or like, you know, the Covington thing, if there was no cameras, there would be no Covington thing because nothing actually happened. Um, there'd right. never be an article like in the next day in the Washington Post saying like a group of teens stared at a man <laughs> like that. <laughs> that's not a news of it. So yeah. It might fact- be a personal essay. No, if it has the potential for a personal essay, like about, well, if you felt that the person had stared at you, you can write an essay about that or you thought they were looking but yeah, it wouldn't be a news story, no. Um, yeah, it gets into the um, social media. I don't know. I the, think the woman who um, wrote the essay about the yoga class, where she saw a black woman struggling in her yoga class, and imagined how bad she felt. It is the most amazing and the most sort of like zeitgeist capturing thing to have ever happened. The the white woman who saw a black woman in her yoga class and wrote about it for Exo Jane. Yeah. I've written about it probably more than it merits, but it's so amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Okay, but yeah, um, but so how do you think social, social media? The role of social media. Um, I mean, I think it's the same as when the press itself was new, right? Like these things are sort of inconceivable without social media. Um, I think what social media does, though, is, well, a few things. There's the fact that, and there have been articles, not by me, um, on this topic, but basically everybody's, every thought exists on social media. So you have all these articles, like people on Twitter are outraged that such and such. So it's very hard to know, I find, um, because of social media, what, what sort of public opinion actually is, if that makes sense. And also just this sense of like, you can feel the people think a certain thing and it's because even if you follow like I follow you know hundreds of people not so so many people but like my sense for example just to give like one not at all controversial topic like where do Jews stand on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict what I would think is the case from the people I follow on social media is not what is the case according to surveys? It's just that these are two completely different things. And then in terms of like being surprised at who won the 2016 election, like even if you're not in a bubble in the sense of everybody's always agreeing with each other, like people I follow, many of them despise one another for ideological reasons. And I'm sure for personal reasons sometimes too. But even though I don't feel like I'm in some sort of bubble, like I'm getting a warped sense and everybody's getting a warped sense of what people really think. So I think that's maybe a lot of it. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think probably no one is like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in a bubble. I constructed a bubble of like-minded people <laughs> and, and I'm good with that. But you, it's it, the reality breakthrough, you know, the 2016 election. Uh, the one that I found really funny was um, the, um, the primary Democratic primary contest for governor in New York state between Cuomo and. Oh, um, right. And Cynthia oh God, Nixon. Her, yeah, Cynthia, Cynthia Nixon. Nixon. And yes. I, so I, like she was a shoe in. Yeah. Well, I, okay. Well, I live far away from the metropole and the media class capital um, in Rochester, New York. And even I was like, well, I think this will maybe be kind of close, but I think like Cuomo will probably win, but I did not see a single positive tweet about Andrew Cuomo from anyone who lived within the five boroughs of New York city. Um, so I was like, okay, so, right. you know, Cynthia Nixon will win the city, but like Cuomo has done all this stuff upstate and like upstate will come through to him. And it's about, you know, about the same population. So it'll be kind of close with Cuomo, like has the advantage. Um, and Cuomo didn't win a, <laughs> any one of the five boroughs. Um, 
and you like lost the Bronx like 80 20 and you lost Brooklyn like 60 40. Um, so yeah, so that's a bubble. So I, I thought, how many people do I follow who live in Brooklyn compared to like what percentage right, well, of, there's of New my York feed is and that? Then, yeah, there's, I feel like even, I mean, so I live in Toronto where, um, so it's all who's governor of New York is not a big deal in my day to day life. But um, I'm from New York City originally, and I think that day-to-day, though, I'm definitely more, like, exposed to the views of, like, 27-year-olds who live in Brooklyn than I am of, like, people I grew up with, you know? Because that's just how it is on Twitter, right? And if I log onto Twitter more than Facebook, which I do, um, yeah, that's kind of how it is. And, um yeah, it leads to a very, even if you're from the place in question, and probably even if I were living in New York, I mean, it would probably still be a bit like that. Um, yeah, it definitely leads to a warped sense of things. Um, and in terms of these controversies, certainly the the video angle, I think, is huge. Um, just the number, the sheer number of stories about bigotry that start in a video, sometimes really like in a great sort of truth telling way where the horrible things that used to kind of go unseen can be seen by all. And really like there can be like a genuine, you know, useful social justice use of these sorts of technologies. There are also these more ambiguous cases where then like the full story emerges um, and things weren't as clear cut as they seemed, but, and it just seems like there's no way out. It seems like, a few seconds of video, people just pick their sides and everybody's on one team or another about a clip of video. And and like you say, there's no expectation that you backtrack and apologize for having gotten it wrong. Like it's just, it's the next thing is in the news and then that's it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't don't know if there's maybe some technological solutions. I don't, I don't know if there's going to be like a, um, learning, process for humans of like, oh, we messed up last time. And now, you know, I, I actually, I, you know, the Covington thing was so stupid and so many people popped off about it and it turned out to be about nothing whatsoever that I think maybe that made people a little more gun shy just to like rally to one side when there's limited facts about what actually happened. Um, but I guess we'll have to see when the next one, you know, what the next viral video <laughs> outrage or pseudo outrage happens. Um, yeah. Do you want to say anything else on this topic before we move to a more lighthearted no, topic? No, no, I'm ready for something more lighthearted. Okay. So that would be, okay. So as referred to previously, um, we wanted to discuss Seinfeld and one of the uh, four main characters uh, was Elaine portrayed by Julia Louise Dreyfus. Um, or is it Louis? I guess if she has, I think it's Louis. I think it's Julia Louis Dreyfus. Cause it's this Louis Dreyfus. French Jewish family. Right. Yeah. Possible relation. And you found an article that was tablet tablet looked into this, looking I at the various famous Dreyfuses in America, whether they're related I spent surprisingly a lot of time in my life thus far studying like French Jewish ancestry. Not, I'm not personally um, French at all, but this is just like for another topic that I, it's on my list for this, but we may not get to it. A different family, a different whole drama going on. But yeah, it's one of the big like French Jewish families um, that she's from, which is why I find it 
very sort of funny to think about. I don't know what her religious affiliation is or what, but like the fact that she's at the center of the Schick's appeal episode of Seinfeld and yet her name is Dreyfus is like kind of amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a bunch of, there's like a bunch of sort of crossover. There's like, um, so the final episode, spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about the final. <laughs> I think it was like literally 20 years ago or more. So oh, no. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I think it was a high school freshman. So it would have, I would have been 13 or 14. So that would have been like, yeah, 98 or so. Yeah, yeah, I, I age about, yeah. So, yeah. Um so that last episode where they're in jail, right? It's kind of Dreyfusy. They're, you know, exiled. <laughs> and then also so this is something I've thought for years that like there's something um this is a spoiler for Proust. Um I have not read all 2000 pages, but there's a lot of Dreyfus in there. Um, but then there's this famous line where Swan um like of Swan's way um, says, um, like to think that I, I don't have this in front of me. So it's going to be like very botched, um, whatever. It's like something like to think that I wasted all these years, um, obsessing over a woman, um, who wasn't even my type. And I think about this in terms of, it seemed very like George Costanza of him because if there's this scene in Seinfeld where, it's some episode where George um, wants to get back together with Susan, is mm-hmm. sort of on again, off again, um, fiance, and he and Jerry is reminding him that he doesn't really want this because he used to complain. Jerry's reminding George that George used to complain about going up to the stairs to her apartment with and being filled with a sense of dread. And George is like, no, 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 like. I want nothing more than to be on those stairs again. And then you see him at the end of the episode, he has convinced her to take him back and he's going up the stairs. Very slowly, right? (laughs) I just feel like both Proust and Seinfeld really get at these like human truths that I think for reasons I will get into in in the Seinfeld holding forth, I don't think are possible um, in today's artistic climate. Oh, interesting. Okay. So yeah. So I guess the reason I wanted to talk to you about this was, um, you mentioned in a recent episode of Feminine Chaos that you identified with George Costanza. And I guess I was surprised by that. And that, and then I was like, well, I guess that kind of shows my sexism because I, I think like, well, if, if Phoebe um, identified with someone from the Seinfeld gang, it would be with Elaine because Elaine is a girl. Um, but, but then I was <laughs> right. like, well, you know, that's really stupid to, to think that. But I also just, you know, I, I don't know you really well or maybe even that well, but I know you a little bit. I guess I, I never thought you were a, George Costanza type um, hmm. because I see. you don't seem like a George Costanza type in particular. Thank you. I suppose. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's not so much about being a George Costanza type. I, I don't think I come across as fully um, as being similar to George Costanza, um, certainly in terms of my day to day life. Um, there's not really a whole lot of overlap there. And I, I, hope the physical resemblance is at a minimum <laughs> because I don't particularly resemble George Costanza. But um, I think it's more that I think that George Costanza is kind of like in all of us, you know, a little bit, or at least in me, like when he's just completely petty about something, like the, a couple scenes come to mind, like the, certainly like the thing where he says like, he wants to have said something snappy at work. And it's like, 
he thinks of a comeback yes. too late. The, the jerk, jerk store. Jerk store yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, things like that. Just um, or just kind of like I just think of him as like this kind of. I mean, I think the Lena Dunham character in Girls, Hannah Horvath, has a lot of this too, but it gets very differently interpreted when it's a woman in that role. Mm-hmm. But um, just somebody who kind of has whichever like bad, selfish impulses I think everybody sometimes has, but just has no check on them, you know? And they're just like worried about like sort of petty things to do with themselves, and but they just don't sort of know to or care to set that aside. And I, I think everybody probably has that to some extent, but I think, um, yeah, yeah, that's, um, I mean, I, I could just, I'm not going to like list every Seinfeld episode and <laughs> why I get where George is coming from. Cause some of that is just be too much of a liability. I don't know. Like, and I identified in this case when he did this and did that, but yeah, I think, I mean, I also, so I wrote about this, I think a little in my book, too, that like George Costanza and also Basil Fawlty from Fawlty Towers um, are these characters of the 1970s British um, sitcom from by John Cleese, um, well, co-written by John Cleese, where um, there's a hotel owner who's just like so ill-suited to that job and just like does should not have any sort of customer service role. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think like they're just. Um, well, this gets at the, your topic about like when people are bad versus good. Like I think Seinfeld just leans into the bad. Like they are all kind of like they're the opposite of like the virtue signaling on Twitter type thing. Like they are not like owning their privilege. They would get like, canceled. Well, not, not not like sitcom canceled. Like people would be like, right. you know, Jerry Seinfeld, you are canceled. Like get out of here. Right, right, and separate from like I think this is a separate topic from although i do want to like briefly touch on this if there's a moment but like this is separate from like the the demographics of the actors on seinfeld i mean like they do not they are like not very enlightened people it's not that they're they're not bigoted by the standards of their day they're well maybe except in here and there but um that's not so much it it's more that they're just kind of misanthropes and they Mm -hmm lean into that and but that's kind of the point in the last episode is that they go to jail um for um basically having been assholes in public yeah yeah Yeah, i think the um yeah so the the the, like all the characters in the george characters in particular have you know they will say or do the thing that you think of doing but society prevents you or uh common courtesy prevents you from acting on this belief and like the cur- on curb your enthusiasm curb your enthusiasm larry does this as well you know these small things in customer service interactions <laughs> in right, which right. you're treated badly and uh the the in real life the person walks away and in um, in the sitcom world um you know you confront the person it becomes very funny um yeah so yeah. there is yeah there is that um so just to um backtrack a little bit um it's like Seinfeld really was like the piece of like i don't know intellectual property or whatever you want to call it like the, the piece of art or whatever that um like influenced me the most from like age i don't know like 11 to 17 probably same same and it used to air on reruns you know you grew up in new york on channel 11 like constantly 
Um, yeah. And my friends and I all watched it. We would watch the reruns. We would quote it. Um, in my friend group, we even kind of like assumed we were like, you're the George, you're the Jerry, you're the Kramer. We didn't have any female friends, so there was no Elaine. Um, and you, uh, viewers at home can guess which one I was. Um, but I want to know which one were you? <laughs> okay. So I was, I was the Jerry of the group, but it okay. was, it I was, was going to guess Jerry. I was going to guess. It was the least, okay. it was more like I had a friend who was very George like and I had a friend who was very Kramer like. Um, oh and so okay. it was like, well, I'll, I'll be the Jerry one. Okay. And yeah, so I, you know, I like really imbibed it and like my, my youthful self, like self identification, uh, came through that show. And so then, um, yeah, you know, it ended and I, like most people don't like the finale wasn't super funny for one, for one thing. Right. And, um, you know, I think like I actually, my wife and I rewatched it, um, last year uh, from the, cause she had never seen some of the episodes um, and we watched it from the beginning. And I think it really does hold up um, in the mm. way that probably not a lot of other <laughs> pieces of pop culture ephemera uh, hold up. Like, yeah, there's, okay. So there's some parts that are like t- 20 years later, they wouldn't do it because it's like racially offensive or something. They, they burned a Puerto Rican flag in one episode. Well, that episode they, I think don't show on reruns because it is like this sort of, Yes, like, that was the one episode they they the took out of just, syndication, but it is yeah, on yeah. I can't remember if it's Hulu or Netflix, um, where we watched it, but it's it's on there so you can see that that episode. It's, it's actually the second to last it's episode. Not in Canada. Oh really? Or, <laughs> no, no um, not that episode. It's not like Canada vetoed that episode. Like, okay. You can't you have, can't get the full run of Seinfeld on a streaming service. I just have it, I have it on DVDs, not all of it, but some. Yeah, not that episode. I think, but just yeah. Yeah, so I think it it holds up. It is still very funny. And really, like, the performances are, like, really incredible. Yeah. I mean, Seinfeld is somewhat the exception because he's not an actor and he's just playing himself. But, um, yeah. like, I think I think rewatching it, I newly appreciated how great uh, Dr- Louis Dreyfus is. Like, she is um, just amazingly funny and, like, is an, <laughs> an actual really, really good act- actor. Well, she's the one who's, like, gone on to do Right, she's other in Veep now. I yeah, mean, and then, you know. Yeah. You know, uh, Michael Richards kind of <laughs> got in trouble. Uh, th- that right. was like that was like kind of a in the pro- proto. Um, oh, that's right. That YouTube feels era. like so long ago. It was like him, and, and then it was also Mel Gibson. They were the kind of early. Yeah, yeah, getting caught on tape doing something racially offensive. But yeah, yeah. and, and uh, but he is such a such an incredibly gifted physical actor, and just the way he's throwing himself around and falling over, it's it's just like incredible to see. And when he works in the bagel shop. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the Festivus episode, everything, well, the, everything about the Festivus episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, Jason Alexander is really, really funny as well. And I think he's not, he's not quite as good as, as Dreyfus, but, um, he, yeah, just like his delivery. And, and when you see interviews with him, you can see like, like that's not his voice. You know, he has, he like created a voice for oh, the character. I I've ever seen. Oh, now I need to see an interview with him. I can't imagine him as not. It's much, yeah, it's much more subdued and like calm. Uh, yeah, so I think, I think the show does really hold up and it's, yeah, so it kind of did, you know, the legacy (laughs) continues. Um, everyone realizes Julia Lee Dreyfus is a comedic genius now. Seinfeld has his little thing where he drives around. I I find it unwatchable, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I watched maybe the first season of it, but didn't. Get into it, but yeah, I think there was kind of like a 
you know, some kind of creative magic happened when you got these all yeah. these people together with Larry David and the, the other writers. Um, so yeah, if you have the chance, if you're not, in, if you're in the U.S., <laughs> try watch rewatching it because it does it does hold up. I mean, do you think like has anything? Is there anything that's kind of like matched the level of of you know creative performance in in terms of like a comedy or just funniness or uh, accomplishment or anything. Yeah. I can't really think of anything. Oh since boy. Then. Well, I can definitely, Oh, we'll get my whole, like, I've watched a lot of TV. Advice, so, um, so I mean, the obvious for me would be faulty towers as like the other show that really sort of captures these kind of like universal human failings in this really timeless way. And I mean, I think in terms of Seinfeld, like I've watched it with my husband who's from Belgium and did not grow up even in an English speaking place and like other, you know, other European people I know will like get it, you know, even though, cause I would always wonder like, do I just think this is so brilliant because it just seems familiar to me because it happens to be set um, sort of kind of sort of in New York, although in this kind of weird sitcom version of New York that doesn't always quite make sense. Right. Where they all but have cars. Of, right. Right. Where they all have cars where, and then we, this kind of a separate topic where they're Jewish, but not Jewish, which is just its own whole weird thing. Right. Um, but in terms of other shows, I mean, absolutely fabulous. I think um, it's really mainly British shows. I think of as like, that would be kind of similar in terms of getting like that same kind of human failing quality. So like absolutely fabulous does a kind of women's version of this that I think much more gets at like sort of female specific George Costanza-ness, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. although I guess that it might've some of it been earlier than Seinfeld or well, certainly not all of it because there was just an absolutely fabulous movie but like Adina Monsoon as like a kind of super flawed, um, ridiculous character. Um, like Elaine is in Seinfeld, but like, I don't think she, whenever they give her a line, that's like the women, the woman's perspective on something. I'm often thinking like, that doesn't make any sense, but I mean, it'll still be funny. I don't like the show less for this, but, but yeah, I'd say like absolutely fabulous, but absolutely fabulous. Isn't as like, it's not like as good and it has so many more sort of weak spots. Like the first few seasons were really good, but um, yeah. And in terms of just being like that funny, we're like, like how can something be that funny? I mean, I guess the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, I think is very funny, but not to that only like a few episodes are like that funny, maybe. Um, but it's like the only, it's the closest thing that's recent that comes to mind. Yeah, that is a great show. I was thinking 30 Rock somewhat. Um, although yeah. like 30 Rock and Kimmy Schmidt are a lot like zanier than Seinfeld. Um, yeah. and exist more like a cartoon universe where, you know, like a fish could start talking or something and it just right. keeps on going. Um, whereas right. Seinfeld, at least it kind of, Seinfeld became more surreal and strange in the later seasons, especially after right. David left in, he left after season seven, I think. Um, hmm. so they did more, they did like the backwards episode and, and stuff like that. But, um, it was, yeah, it was mostly grounded in, in realism in that they were dealing with like actual human problems, like a parking space or, you know, or something. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, nothing I've seen since like since then has 
done that exactly like the, like the office obviously like was had a lot of to do with like mundane reality but that was had a very different tonal feel to it and was more like you know uh characters who you were rooting for instead of like these well the awful office characters. i think is really different in terms of where um jim and pam would like look or was it just jim would like look at the camera and you're supposed to like the audience is supposed to identify with the kind of I don't want to say cool, but some sort of normal people in mm-hmm. the office, you know, and think of Michael. I have not watched the show in a while. Yeah, Michael as the kind of like um, as ridiculous. Whereas I feel like Seinfeld asks the audience to identify with the ridiculousness, mm-hmm. and Jerry's just kind of in the middle of it. But I don't know that you're really supposed to identify with Jerry. He's just kind of like you know, the comedic straight man, but I don't know. I'm not sure if it's quite the same. Jerry's not looking at the camera, not literally and not even like sort of. Right. Yeah. So there's, yeah. So there's, I mean, one change since Seinfeld is is most of the shows, most of the sitcoms now are like the single camera format, not, and it's not where Seinfeld is for, before a live studio audience. Right. And so that's different. And yeah, like, and the office established that kind of like docu documentary style and yeah. And most, most shows like, um, Brooklyn Nine Nine is something I'm watching right now because I uh, on Hulu and that like it basically plays like a sitcom from the 90s where like zany things are happening and all the characters are kooky, but it is like um, you know there's no studio audience. It's like uh, filmed you know, like a drama would be. So that's oh, or also the Mindy Project. That's reminding me though, The Office, the Mindy Project's maybe a little more Seinfeldish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that because Mindy, Mindy. At least in the beginning, I kind of stopped watching it, but Mindy was a real jerk, and yes, um, yes. yeah, kept on doing re- like really awful things that you're, where you weren't supposed to root for her. Um, okay, do you want to maybe just for ten minutes talk about canceling and uncanceling? Yes, sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, and then we'll then we'll wrap it up. So yeah, I was just thinking like, you know, there's there are all these there are all these people out there who are opposed to the social justice warriors and think that the those social justice warriors go around canceling people at the drop of a hat if they say the wrong word or are insensitive culturally or racially or on some like gender way <laughs> then you know they'll say you are canceled like get out of here and so it kind of you know i guess it, w- it was kind of going on before me too but once that broke i think that like kind of accelerated it where it was like for a while, like every other day, some men, some man was be- powerful man was being exposed for his, mm-hmm. um, you know, sexual transgressions, and it was like, well, this one's canceled. Louis C.K. is canceled. Um, Barbara Streisand has been canceled because well, they're was, canceled by association now. Right, also. Barbara Streisand st- uh, stood up for or not by association, but like there's canceled for having a bad take on the thing, not just for having done the thing. Right. So that's a second level cancellation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Barbara Streisand defended, uh, her good friend, the late Michael Jackson. Um, right. even after this documentary came out that I did not see, um, that I guess established very clearly that Michael Jackson was a pedophile who like right. groomed children, um, for, to have sex with them. And Barbara Streisand so what, was like, I, but, you know, right. So that basically that he, he, he had been, I, I had, always heard the rumor that he was a child molester and rapist, but I have not seen this documentary either, but right. Like you say, it seems like it was pretty definitive and yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any case. I don't think there's any interpretation where Barbara Streisand's take on this 
was um, reasonable. I guess the question is, what do you do with that? And like, do you say never mind about Barbara Streisand as a human being, as a career? Is it like now you can't listen to Barbara Streisand albums as one does? Apparently, <laughs> I'll have to put all my Barbara Streisand records in the garbage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I continuing. I'm continuing the Barbara Streisand bo- uh, record boycott <laughs> that I've been sticking to for the yeah, past couple decades. Well, um, well. Okay, so yeah, so. You know, ever it's so then there's people mostly on the right who are like, you know, we're all like on, um, you know, we all have to like tiptoe around and the like, eggshells. Yeah, we're on eggshells. Yeah. We're afraid. Everyone's afraid of being canceled. One wrong word will get you canceled. And um, I was thinking that like, okay, there's, okay, so there's people who it's been exposed are guilty of monstrous crimes. Um, so that's like Bill Cosby, Michael Jackson, uh, Harvey Weinstein, allegedly. Um, so when Kevin you know, Spacey, apparently, yeah, Kevin Spacey, yeah. probably, although he made a weird video trying to do some kind of comeback thing. If you remember a couple months ago. Um, so Same yeah, way. so, so there's way. people like that who are guilty of serious crimes and or transgressions where it's like their career is probably over um, or, or they go to jail. Like, like Cosby is in jail. Um, but after that, it's kind of like, okay, can you actually be canceled if you don't want to be canceled? Um, is there no cancellation but self-cancellation is, I guess, the way I was thinking of it. And look at the three men who are at the top of Virginia state government. Um, you know, the governor uh, was acute, was uh, seemingly posing in either a Klan hood or blackface. I can't remember which. And or maybe he said he was it was the blackface, not the Klan hood. But anyway, he did something pretty racist when he was a medical student. And then it came out that there were multiple women accusing his um, lieutenant governor of having sexually assaulted them or raped them. And it came out that the attorney general also, I think actually he admitted himself that he um, wore blackface at some point, like in the eighties when he was in college. I think I missed that whole step of it, but yes. Yeah. So all, yeah. So there were three separate guys, two blackface (laughs) accusations, um, I think which they admitted to and one um, sexual assault, one was accused of sexual assault multiple times, which he has denied. Um, and okay, none of these guys resigned. Right. Um, and it was for a couple days there. It was like, how can Ralph Northam hold on? Like, all he did was just nothing, <laughs> and he held on perfectly fine. Um, you know, and so Virginia is weird because the governors have a one-term uh, term limit, so he mm. can't he can't get elected governor again. Probably he's not going to be elected to anything else. Right. Uh, well, who knows? <laughs> Depends but, where the country goes. Exactly, but who knows? Yeah. And yeah, the guy who has multiple women accusing him of rape is still the attorney general. Um, yeah. So yeah, if you don't give in to like the the crowd or the mob or however you want to characterize it, like you can probably hang on because the the like life cycle the life cycle of these stories is such that there's another outrage coming down the pike mm. within a week. We'll be talking about something else within a month. We'll have totally forgotten about it. It's been, I think, two months since the Ralph Northam thing. Mm-hmm. Is anyone still like? Are people like parade like with signs outside the governor's mansion in Virginia saying like resign now? I don't think so. Well, I, I look out the window it. in Toronto. I, I, I'm not sure, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. I, I think, um, well, I think this also gets to this gets back to um, this notion of social media and bubbles because I think there's a way that people on the left and I shouldn't say that progressives. Um, the ones who will be deemed social justice warriors communicate on social media that gives a rhetorical impression of having power that they just often don't have. 
So like I was that I think I brought this up also in the podcast with Kat, but where there was um, somebody who was, I think, a professor um, in Canada said something like about it was like a tweet. There was something like Canadian academics who write for Quillette, the publication that's sort of contrarian, whatever, who write for Quillette. We see you. We know who you are. And then like people were tweeting like something about like lists of the people who that they were going to make lists. The question is, do these people have any power who are saying this? And I think sometimes yes, sometimes no. But that I think like what I'm obsessed with this idea of there being something called like what called I call it social justice ease is not very good. It makes more sense when I write it down, I guess. You mean like, but ling- there's like a social. Yeah, like there's a way that people talk. And they can make you feel when they talk to you in this way, like they're very powerful and they can kind of turn you in, like make you walk on these kind of eggshells, but they don't necessarily actually have power in society. If that makes sense, they don't necessarily control anything. And I think um, if you exit whichever bubble, there is this wide world in which Trump is president. You know what I mean? Talk about avoiding cancellation. Exactly. Donald J. Trump. In which it's possible to be quite problematic and sort of celebrated for that. So it just depends who you can also just kind of change who your audience is. You know what I mean? Like maybe Louis CK is done in terms of that role he had when like, when I first learned about him was, this is going to make me seem very cool. was listening to a fresh air podcast where um, Terry Gross was interviewing him. This was like many years ago. I was like on a bus in Paris listening to this podcast and like, who's this Louis CK? And it was all about how he like is so good at understanding his own privilege or whatever and conveying that to audiences. I think he's done in that role, but is he done, <laughs> done? Not necessarily. No, you he's know? not done, done because there's another audience out there, which right. is making fun of the privileged little college students who right. need a safe space and a trigger warning. Um, exactly. And so Aziz, Aziz Ansari has, is, is touring again. Um, you know, his, whether he was guilty of any actual violation is still being debated, but, um, okay. He took, right. he, or he whether took he off. had his own privacy violated is another whole possibility. That, right. Yeah. So he basically took a year off from being um, like a touring comedian or what, whatever else he was doing. Um, but he's back on tour and now he tells jokes making fun of college students. And the leaked set yeah. that Louis C.K. Uh, performed, uh, which he, it, it seemed like he was decided that he was going to uh, turn his, uh, you know, satire against, um, you know, the social justice warriors. He's making fun of students who had survived um a mass shooting at their school and, right, right, right. and things like that. So there's, so there's an audience for that too. This is a big country and he could probably have some other kind of career um, doing that. And yeah, it's just like, if you lay, if you lay low, um, maybe you have to make some changes. Uh, you're probably, you're not permanently canceled. Like, <laughs> well, you can make changes in either direction is the thing. Like it, it's not, it might be more lucrative to make changes where you're no longer striving to seem virtuous, you know, then you go more the sort of Seinfeld, like the, not Seinfeld demand, Seinfeld the show route where you're just leaning into the awfulness and making the comedy from that. I mean, what I think is interesting though, with this whole issue of the cancellation and the eggshells and all that is how the people you hear the most from 
about how they've been silenced are people who have made careers out of being kind of martyrs. If we hear from them about being silenced, therefore they have not been silenced. But I feel like this gets tricky because the fact is there are people who are, and I don't think that this is like particularly debatable. There are people who are worried that if they say the wrong thing, they'll be fired from a job. I don't think that that's, and I don't think it's necessarily just in one direction politically. You know, I think in the actual world off, not that Twitter isn't real in its own way, but you know, if you work in a small office and you say things your boss doesn't like, you could get fired. And that hasn't, it's not like that's like, I think that's why there's such an obsession with like professors free speech, because these are the only people who could plausibly imagine they would have it at work. Because they can't be, because if they have tenure, they can't right. be fired. Right. Um, but I mean, I think it gets confusing where somebody like, like a, another person who I think has some YouTube is this Jordan Peterson fellow. I've heard the name, not super familiar. <laughs> um, my fellow Torontonian, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, waving. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, somebody like that. On the one hand, it seems absurd. Like, are people like this being silenced? Obviously, you know, you go on YouTube and it, no matter how many Britcom reruns you use it for, it's still showing you Jordan Peterson clips. Um, like in the recommendations, you mean? Like In the recommendations, yeah. exactly, yeah. You don't have to click on it for it to show you this. So, um, believe me. Um, <laughs> but the question is, though, are people like this speaking for a kind of silenced... I don't want to say majority, but like, are they speaking for some kind of, for real people who don't have a platform? But I think it, what gets very tricky with these conversations is that often the right to speak out gets wrapped up in these kind of cults of personality around people who've turned themselves into martyrs. Um, we don't have time for me to go into how this totally also happens in 1840s France, but just know that it did. That's all I ask. Okay, so it's maybe more the the human condition than um. Well, that dynamic is certainly that dynamic. I think of like claiming that you were silenced um, as a kind of power move is not new, but it's certainly with social media um, become much more of a thing. Yeah, Yeah, and you know, thirty years ago, if you were some kind of public figure, um, it's who did, who transgressed in some way. It seemed like, uh, the media as a whole could basically silence you because mm-hmm. they would say, we're not putting you on TV anymore. We're not, uh, your, right. your articles will not be, you know, included in, uh, various publications or whatever. Um, but now, as we all know, you know, you can do it yourself and you really have to violate a lot of boundaries to get banned from the social media, um, mm-hmm networks like like it took years and years and years for them to kick alex jones off of these various channels um so just right. you know keep on doing your thing and <laughs> and, uh, and you can even monetize it i wanted to ask you though just about like um your your arguments about this about the self-cancellation so what do you make of that though like the new phenomenon of like ya authors or whoever like self-canceling yeah so that's the one that's the ones where it's like most um like literal, if the people, right. it's, I guess it's happened twice um, in the past couple of months of these right. uh, like debut authors in YA literature uh, withdrawing their their books from publication. Um, may, unclear if it's like for some period of time or permanently. And I mean, yeah, that's that's like 
they like they if they had just like written it out, then the book would have been published. Because the the YA thing is super weird because the people who truly are incensed about it are like three dozen, you know, <laughs> adults scattered across the country who have like 4,000 Twitter followers yeah. each. And the idea that this is like some sort of groundswell of public opinion against any particular I find, book you know, is crazy. I find, the, I find the whole power dynamic aspect of this. So I am not part of that world at all, but I've read a bit about the controversies and yeah it's it seems like i guess it has something to do with um if they get bad reviews on goodreads but it seems like the good reviews could cancel it out i i cancel it whatever <laughs> um yeah i guess i don't just as a writer i can't imagine self-canceling i i think i have too much ego for that if i'd written a whole novel i would not be like oh never mind like i don't know yeah, it's strange, and I guess it yeah. has to do with the, the authors themselves yeah. identifying as part of the community, and like articles yeah, are written yeah. about the um, yeah. the second guy whose name I can't remember um, was kind of a like part of the like you know um, squad of people who go after yes. other authors for writing things, and was also I think a sensitivity reader, which added another whole right. And the fact that the two yeah. people who have withdrawn their novels are one was I think I have this right. One was Chinese American, right. one was African American. Um, right. it's, it's kind of like the people who have some investment in the community are more likely to self cancel. Whereas the people who are like just out to make a buck or whatever, um, yeah. who are just like, no, this is going through no matter what, you know, they're, they get to make some money. Whereas right. the, the other people are, are losing out on the sales. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I don't see that as a, like a wise financial, what, what do I know about how people make money writing? But I, I don't see that as like a wise financial strategy. I feel like probably not self-canceling would be more lucrative, but what do I know? Right. So yeah, I feel that it's like, you know, um, offering some sort of like, you know, weird advice to someone who is in the middle, who's, uh, people are trying to cancel. Like you probably did something that offended them in some way. Like you could try apologizing, but you don't have, you know, unless you are like, I'm going to go live in the monastery or I'm withdrawing from public life indefinitely, then, you know, two or three but months it's later. All that, it's all that gets praised. I think though, is the self cancellation because I think whenever people apologize, then certainly if it's on Twitter, the first reply will be like, you suck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it just kind of, I think the only thing that seems to get the, that was really good of you kind of, Twitter response, at least, is, like, a real, like, how dare I have, you know, like, taken up space in this world. With yeah, my, like, shaving your yeah. head and, and dying, yeah. like, uh, yeah. sackcloth and ashes exactly. to, exactly. like, penitently walk somewhere. Um, exactly. That's what they want. And then, I don't know, like, they'll forget about you the next day because there'll be another outrage. It's not like they're going to be, like, inviting you into their right. homes to like nurse you back to health uh, <laughs> metaphorically or something. If it happens, I think there's similar sort of outrages on the left and right. I mean, I think about like the outrage at like two writers um, who are teaching like adjunct teaching at NYU in the journalism school. Um, and this got similar, like, I guess, I mean, I, I had whatever thoughts on, like, I guess maybe one of them or the other, but, like, it just seemed, like, also just not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, but it, it also got all this outrage because I think it had to do with, 
it was some sort of incident where somebody, people on the right, I think, or somewhat also not on the right thought should have been kind of canceled. And how dare this person kind of like surface again and not have been canceled when it was like, what had they surfaced to do? Well, it was to adjunct teach a class for like a few thousand dollars, which, you know, I mean, like, should people not earn money and like completely disappear? Like, I don't know. The stakes are sometimes a little warped like that. Yeah, and yeah. The, I know the, the two people you're talking about, I think, are Talia Lavin, if I'm pronouncing that right, and um, Lauren Duca. And Lauren Duca, right. Um, and yeah. one, of th- one of them was referred to on, like, uh, Laura Ingram's sh- show as, like, a journo terrorist or something like that. So, <laughs> my, my, whole, my whole family is... Okay, so that means we've gone very long. Um, <laughs> I think so. I see a, a stroller, a poodle, and not not just those two, also. <laughs> Also, my husband. So, um, okay. So, why don't we? That's a good. I, that's a good sign. That. Okay, they're. I think they've all made it through. They. I assume the baby is in the stroller. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, yeah. so that's a good sign that we should probably uh, wrap it up there. I then. So. Uh, so, thanks so much for coming on. Finally, I think we've been talking about talking about Dreyfus for a while. So, um, for ages, yes. So well, thank, thank you so much. This was this was a joy. Oh, that's yeah. great. Um, so. Uh, yeah, so watch Feminine Chaos, um, and uh, yeah. if you don't, uh, if you don't, you're missing out. So, um, yeah. thank you, Phoebe, and thanks to our viewers and listeners. Sorry. All right, thank you so much. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request: if you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.